Chapter Twenty, Part One of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova. Episode Five, Milan and Mantua. Chapter Twenty, Part One. On low Sunday, Charles paid us a visit with his lovely wife, who seemed totally indifferent to what Christine used to be. Her hair dressed with powder did not please me as well as the raven black of her beautiful locks, and her fashionable town attire did not, in my eyes, suit her as well as her rich country dress. But the countenances of husband and wife bore the stamp of happiness. Charles reproached me in a friendly manner because I had not called once upon them, and, in order to atone for my apparent negligence, I went to see them the next day with M. Dandelot. Charles told me that his wife was idolized by his aunt and his sister, who had become her bosom friend, that she was kind, affectionate, unassuming, and of a disposition which enforced affection. I was no less pleased with this favorable state of things than with the facility with which Christine was learning the Venetian dialect. When M. Dandelot and I called at their house, Charles was not at home. Christine was alone with his two relatives. The most friendly welcome was proffered to us, and in the course of conversation the aunt praised the progress made by Christine in her writing very highly, and asked her to let me see her copy-book. I followed her to the next room, where she told me that she was very happy, that every day she discovered new virtues in her husband. He had told her, without the slightest appearance of suspicion or displeasure, that he knew that we'd spent two days together in Treviso, and that he had laughed at the well-meaning fool who had given him that piece of information in the hope of raising a cloud in the heaven of their felicity. Charles was truly endowed with all the virtues, with all the noble qualities of an honest and distinguished man. Twenty-six years afterwards I happened to require the assistance of his purse, and found him my true friend. I never was a frequent visitor at his house, and he appreciated my delicacy. He died a few months before my last departure from Venice, leaving his widow in easy circumstances, and three well-educated sons, all with good positions, who may, for what I know, be still living with their mother. In June I went to the fair at Padua, and made the acquaintance of a young man of my own age, who was then studying mathematics under the celebrated Professor Succi. His name was Tognolo, but thinking it did not sound well, he changed it for that of Fabri. He became, in after years, Comte de Fabri, lieutenant-general under Joseph II, and died governor of Transylvania. This man, who owed his high fortune to his talents, would, perhaps, have lived and died unknown if he had kept his name of Tognolo, a truly vulgar one. He was from Uderzo, a large village of the Venetian Frioli. He had a brother in the church, a man of parts, and a great gamester, who, having a deep knowledge of the world, had taken the name of Fabri, and the younger brother had to assume it likewise. Soon afterwards he bought an estate with the title of Count, became a Venetian nobleman, and his origin as a country bumpkin was forgotten. If he had kept his name of Tognolo, it would have injured him, for he could not have pronounced it without reminding his hearers of what is called, by the most contemptible of prejudices, low extraction, and the privileged class, through an absurd error, does not admit the possibility of a peasant having talent or genius. No doubt a time will come when society, more enlightened, and therefore more reasonable, will acknowledge that noble feelings, honour, and heroism 
can be found in every condition of life as easily as in a class the blood of which is not always exempt from the taint of a misalliance the new count while he allowed others to forget his origin was too wise to forget it himself and in legal documents he always signed his family name as well as the one he had adopted his brother had offered him two ways to win fortune in the world leaving him perfectly free in his choice both required an expenditure of one thousand sequins but the abbey had put the amount aside for that purpose my friend had to choose between the sword of mars and the bird of minerva the abbey knew that he could purchase for his brother a company in the army of his imperial and apostolic majesty or obtain for him a professorship at the university of padua for money can do everything but my friend who was gifted with noble feelings and good sense knew that in either profession talents and knowledge were essentials and before making a choice he was applying himself with great success to the study of mathematics he ultimately decided upon the military profession thus imitating achilles who preferred the sword to the distaff and he paid for it with his life like the son of peleus though not so young and not through a wound inflicted by an arrow but from the plague which he caught in the unhappy country in which the indolence of europe allows the turks to perpetuate that fearful disease the distinguished appearance the noble sentiments the great knowledge and the talents of fabri would have been turned into ridicule in a man called tognolo for such is the force of prejudices particularly of those which have no ground to rest upon that an ill-sounding name is degrading in this our stupid society my opinion is that men who have an ill-sounding name or one which presents an indecent or ridiculous idea are right in changing it if they intend to win honour fame and fortune either in arts or sciences no one can reasonably deny them that right provided the name they assume belongs to nobody the alphabet is general property and every one has the right to use it for the creation of a word forming an appellative sound but he must truly create it voltaire in spite of his genius would not perhaps have reached posterity under his name of arouet especially amongst the french who always give way so easily to their keen sense of ridicule and equivocation how could they have imagined that a writer arouet could be a man of genius and d'alembert would he have attained his high fame his universal reputation if he had been satisfied with his name of monsieur leron or mr allround what would have become of metastasio under his true name of trapasso what impression would melanchthon have made with his name of schwarzert would he then have dared to raise the voice of a moralist philosopher of a reformer of the eucharist and so many other holy things would not monsieur de beauharnais have caused some persons to laugh and others to blush if he had kept his name of beauvis even if the first founder of his family had been indebted for his fortune to the fine quality expressed by that name would the bourbeux have made as good a figure on the throne as the bourbons i think that king poniatowski ought to have abdicated the name of augustus which he had taken at the time of his accession to the throne when he abdicated royalty the colleoni of bergamo however would find it rather difficult to change their name because they would be compelled at the same time to change their coat of arms the two generative glands and thus to annihilate the glory of their ancestor the hero bartolomeo towards the end of autumn my friend fabri introduced me to a family in the midst of which the mind and the heart could find delicious food that family resided in the country on the road to zero card-playing love-making and practical jokes were the order of the day 
Some of those jokes were rather severe ones, but the order of the day was never to get angry and to laugh at everything, for one was to take every jest pleasantly or be thought a bore. Bedsteads would at night tumble down under their occupants. Ghosts were personated. Diuretic pills or sugar-plums were given to young ladies, as well as comfits who produced certain winds rising from the Netherlands, and impossible to keep under control. These jokes would sometimes go rather too far, but such was the spirit animating all the members of that circle. They would laugh. I was not less inured than the others to the war of offence and defence, but at last there was such a bitter joke played upon me that it suggested to me another, the fatal consequences of which put a stop to the mania by which we were all possessed. We were in the habit of walking to a farm which was about half a league distant by the road, but the distance could be reduced by half by going over a deep and miry ditch across which a narrow plank was thrown, and I always insisted upon going that way, in spite of the fright of the ladies who always trembled on the narrow bridge, although I never failed to cross the first and to offer my hand to help them over. One fine day I crossed first so as to give them courage, but suddenly, when I reached the middle of the plank, it gave way under me, and there I was in the ditch, up to the chin in stinking mud, and, in spite of my inward rage, obliged, according to the general understanding, to join in the merry laughter of all my companions. But the merriment did not last long, for the joke was too bad, and every one declared it to be so. Some peasants were called to the rescue, and with much difficulty they dragged me out in the most awful state. An entirely new dress embroidered with spangles, my silk stockings, my lace, everything was of course spoiled. But not minding it, I laughed more heartily than anybody else, although I had already made an inward vow to have the most cruel revenge. In order to know the author of that bitter joke, I had only to appear calm and indifferent about it. It was evident that the plank had been purposely sawn. I was taken back to the house, a shirt, a coat, a complete costume were lent me, for I had come that time only for twenty-four hours, and had not brought anything with me. I went to the city the next morning, and towards the evening I returned to the gay company. Fabry, who had been as angry as myself, observed to me that the perpetrator of the joke evidently felt his guilt, because he took good care not to discover himself. But I unveiled the mystery by promising one sequin to a peasant woman if she could find out who had sawn the plank. She contrived to discover the young man who had done the work, I called on him, and the offer of a sequin, together with my threats, compelled him to confess that he had been paid for his work by Signor Demetrio, a Greek, dealer in spices, a good and amiable man of between forty-five and fifty years, on whom I never played any trick except in the case of a pretty young servant-girl whom he was courting and whom I had juggled from him. Satisfied with my discovery, I was wrecking my brain to invent a good practical joke, but to obtain complete revenge it was necessary that my trick should prove worse than the one he had played upon me. Unfortunately, my imagination was at bay. I could not find anything. A funeral put an end to my difficulties. Armed with my hunting-knife, I went alone to the cemetery a little after midnight, and opening the grave of the dead man who had been buried that very day, I cut off one of the arms near the shoulder, not without some trouble and after I had reburied the corpse, I returned to my room with the arm of the defunct. The next day, when supper was over, I left the table and retired to my chamber as if I intended to go to bed, but, taking the arm with me, I hid myself under Demetrio's bed. A short time after, the Greek comes in, undresses himself, puts his light out, and lies down. 
I give him time to fall nearly asleep. Then, placing myself at the foot of the bed, I pull away the clothes little by little until he is half naked. He laughs and calls out, "'Whoever you may be, go away and let me sleep quietly, for I do not believe in ghosts.' He covers himself again and composes himself to sleep. I wait five or six minutes and pull again at the bedclothes, but when he tries to draw up the sheet, saying that he does not care for ghosts, I oppose some resistance. He sits up so as to catch the hand which is pulling at the clothes, and I take care that he should get hold of the dead hand. Confident that he has caught the man or the woman who was playing the trick, he pulls it towards him, laughing all the time. I keep tight hold of the arm for a few instants, and then let it go suddenly. The Greek falls back on his pillow without uttering a single word. The trick was played. I leave the room without any noise, and, reaching my chamber, go to bed. I was fast asleep when towards morning I was awoke by persons going about, and not understanding why they should be up so early, I got up. The first person I met, the mistress of the house, told me that I had played an abominable joke. I? What have I done? Monsieur Demetrio is dying. Have I killed him? She went away without answering me. I dressed myself rather frightened, I confess, but determined upon pleading a complete ignorance of everything and I proceeded to Demetria's room, and I was confronted with horror-stricken countenances and bitter reproaches. I found all the guests around him. I protested my innocence, but everyone smiled. The archpriest and the beadle, who had just arrived, would not bury the arm which was lying there, and they told me that I had been guilty of a great crime. "'I am astonished, reverend sir,' I said to the priest, at the hasty judgment which is thus passed upon me, when there is no proof to condemn me. "'You have done it!' exclaimed all the guests. "'You alone are capable of such an abomination. It is just like you. No one but you would have dared to do such a thing.' "'I am compelled,' said the archpriest, "'to draw up an official report.' "'As you please. I have not the slightest objection,' I answered. "'I have nothing to fear.' And I left the room. I continued to take it coolly, and at the dinner-table I was informed that M. Demetrio had been bled, that he had recovered the use of his eyes, but not of his tongue or of his limbs. The next day he could speak, and I heard, after I had taken leave of the family, that he was stupid and spasmodic. The poor man remained in that painful state for the rest of his life. I felt deeply grieved, but I had not intended to injure him so badly. I thought that the trick he had played upon me might have cost my life, and I could not help deriving consolation from that idea." On the same day the archpriest made up his mind to have the arm buried, and to send a formal denunciation against me to the episcopal chancellorship of Treviso. Annoyed at the reproaches which I received on all sides, I returned to Venice. A fortnight afterwards I was summoned to appear before the magistrato alla blasphemia. I begged M. Barbaro to inquire the cause of the aforesaid summons, for it was a formidable court. I was surprised at the proceedings being taken against me as if there had been a certainty of my having desecrated a grave, whilst there could be nothing but suspicion. But I was mistaken. The summons was not relating to that affair. M. Barbaro informed me in the evening that a woman had brought a complaint against me for having violated her daughter. She stated in her complaint that, having decoyed her child to the Zuecca, I had abused her by violence, and she adduced as a proof that her daughter was confined to her bed owing to the bad treatment she had received from me in my endeavours to ravish her. It was one of those complaints which are often made in order to give trouble and to cause expense, 
even against innocent persons. I was innocent of violation, but it was quite true that I had given the girl a sound thrashing. I prepared my defence, and begged M. Barbaro to deliver it to the magistrate's secretary. Declaration I hereby declare that, on such a day, having met the woman with her daughter, I accosted them, and offered to give them some refreshments at a coffee-house nearby, that the daughter refused to accept my caresses, and that the mother said to me, My daughter is yet a virgin, and she is quite right not to lose her maidenhood without making a good profit by it. If so, I answered, I will give you ten sequins for her virginity. You may judge for yourself, said the mother. Having assured myself of the fact by the assistance of the sense of feeling, and having ascertained that it might be true, I told the mother to bring the girl in the afternoon to the Zueca, and that I would give her the ten sequins. My offer was joyfully accepted. The mother brought her daughter to me, she received the money, and leaving us together in the garden of the cross, she went away. When I tried to avail myself of the right for which I had paid, the girl, most likely trained to the business by her mother, contrived to prevent me. At first the game amused me, but at last, being tired of it, I told her to have done. She answered quietly that it was not her fault if I was not able to do what I wanted. Vexed and annoyed, I placed her in such a position that she found herself at bay, but, making a violent effort, she managed to change her position and debarred me from making any further attempts. Why, I said to her, did you move? Because I would not have it in that position. You would not? No. Without more ado, I got hold of a broomstick, and gave her a good lesson, in order to get something for the ten sequins which I had been foolish enough to pay in advance. But I have broken none of her limbs, and I took care to apply my blows only on her posteriors, on which spot I have no doubt that all the marks may be seen. In the evening I made her dress herself again, and sent her back in a boat which chanced to pass, and she was landed in safety. The mother received ten sequins, the daughter has kept her hateful maidenhood, and, if I am guilty of anything, it is only of having given a thrashing to an infamous girl, the pupil of her still more infamous mother. My declaration had no effect. The magistrate was acquainted with the girl, and the mother laughed at having duped me so easily. I was summoned, but did not appear before the court, and a writ was on the point of being issued against my body, when the complaint of the profanation of a grave was filed against me before the same magistrate. It would have been less serious for me if the second affair had been carried before the Council of Ten, because one court might have saved me from the other. The second crime, which, after all, was only a joke, was high felony in the eyes of the clergy, and a great deal was made of it. I was summoned to appear within twenty-four hours, and it was evident that I would be arrested immediately afterwards. Monsieur de Bragadin, who always gave good advice, told me that the best way to avoid the threatening storm was to run away. The advice was certainly wise, and I lost no time in getting ready. I have never left Venice with so much regret as I did then, for I had some pleasant intrigues on hand, and I was very lucky at cards. My three friends assured me that, within one year at the furthest, the cases against me would be forgotten, and in Venice, when public opinion has forgotten anything, it can be easily arranged. I left Venice in the evening, and the next day I slept at Verona. Two days afterwards I reached Mantua. I was alone, with plenty of clothes and jewels, without letters of introduction, but with a well-filled purse, enjoying excellent health and my twenty-three years. In Mantua I ordered an excellent dinner, the very first thing one ought to do at a large hotel, and after dinner I went out for a walk. 
In the evening, after I had seen the coffee-houses and the places of resort, I went to the theatre, and I was delighted to see Marina appear on the stage as a comic dancer, amid the greatest applause, which she deserved, for she danced beautifully. She was tall, handsome, very well made and very graceful. I immediately resolved on renewing my acquaintance with her, if she happened to be free, and after the opera I engaged a boy to take me to her house. She had just sat down to supper with someone, but the moment she saw me she threw her napkin down and flew to my arms. I returned her kisses, judging by her warmth that her guest was a man of no consequence. The servant, without waiting for orders, had already laid a plate for me, and Marina invited me to sit down near her. I felt vexed because the aforesaid individual had not risen to salute me, and before I accepted Marina's invitation I asked her who the gentleman was, begging her to introduce me. "'This gentleman,' she said, is Count Sely, of Rome. He is my lover. "'I congratulate you,' I said to her, and, turning towards the so-called Count, "'Sir,' I added, "'do not be angry at our mutual affection. Marina is my daughter.' "'She is a prostitute.' "'True,' said Marina. "'And you can believe the Count, for he is my procurer.' At those words the brute threw his knife at her face, but she avoided it by running away. The scoundrel followed her, but I drew my sword and said, "'Stop, or you are a dead man.' I immediately asked Marina to order her servant to light me out, but she hastily put a cloak on, and taking my arm she entreated me to take her with me. "'With pleasure,' I said. The Count then invited me to meet him alone on the following day at the Casino of Pomi to hear what he had to say. "'Very well, sir, at four in the afternoon,' I answered. I took Marina to my inn, where I lodged her in the room adjoining mine, and we sat down to supper. Marina, seeing that I was thoughtful, said, "'Are you sorry to have saved me from the rage of that brute?' "'No, I am glad to have done so. But tell me truly who and what he is.' "'He is a gambler by profession, and gives himself out as Count Sely. I made his acquaintance here. He courted me, invited me to supper, played after supper, and, having won a large sum from an Englishman whom he had decoyed to his supper by telling him that I would be present, he gave me fifty guineas, saying that he had given me an interest in his bank. As soon as I become his mistress, he insisted upon my being compliant with all the men he wanted to make his dupes, and at last he took up his quarters at my lodgings. The welcome I gave you very likely vexed him, and you know the rest. Here I am, and here I will remain until my departure from Mantua, where I have an engagement as first dancer. My servant will bring me all I need for to-night, and I will give him orders to move all my luggage to-morrow.' I will not see that scoundrel any more. I will be only yours, if you are free as in Corfu, and if you love me still. Yes, my dear Marina, I do love you, but if you wish to be my mistress, you must be only mine. Oh, of course. I have three hundred sequins, and I will give them to you to-morrow, if you will take me as your mistress. I do not want any money. All I want is yourself. Well, it is all arranged. To-morrow evening we shall feel more comfortable.' Perhaps you are thinking of a duel for to-morrow. But do not imagine such a thing, dearest. I know that man. He is an errant coward. I must keep my engagement with him. I know that, but he will not keep his, and I am very glad of it. Changing the conversation, and speaking of our old acquaintances, she informed me that she had quarrelled with her brother Petronio, that her sister was Primadonna in Genoa, and that Bellino Therese was still in Naples, where she continued to ruin dukes. She concluded by saying, "'I am the most unhappy of the family.' "'How so? You are beautiful, and you have become an excellent dancer. 
do not be so prodigal of your favours, and you cannot fail to meet with a man who will take care of your fortune. To be sparing of my favours is very difficult. When I love, I am no longer mine, but when I do not love, I cannot be amiable. Well, dearest, I could be very happy with you. Dear Marina, I am not wealthy, and my honour would not allow me. Hold your tongue, I understand you. Why have you not a lady's maid with you, instead of a male servant? You are right, a maid would look more respectable, but my servant is so clever and so faithful. I can guess all his qualities, but he's not a fit servant for you. End of chapter 20, part 1